Hey Nick, so I've been using the OBG project a lot recently to help me remember some of the GYN things that I started to forget after my first year of MFM fellowship and also on a lot of the primary care stuff like on today's episode for asthma and pregnancy. Yeah, you know, as these oral boards draw closer to us, Faye, I worry more and more about my ability to remember some of these things, but thankfully the OBG project literally fits in my pocket and I can pull it up on my phone with my library from OBG first find everything that I need and have probably forgotten. And if you are a fourth year resident, you can get one year of OBG first absolutely free. You just go ahead and enter um, your email and let them know who you are and they'll get back to you to let you get that subscription service. You can head over to our website, reagsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar and you can get signed up for OBG first. Alright guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creags over, over Coffee. We are delighted to have back with us today Dr. Mary Ruhutina. Just as a reminder, Dr. Ruhutina is a minimally invasive gynecologic surgery fellow at Yale New Haven Hospital in Connecticut. Welcome back, Mary. Thanks for having me again. So Mary, last time you talked to us all about the basics of laparoscopy, we talked a little bit about, you know, setting up the room, we talked about entry, we talked about um, all the different types of ports and things like that. Today, can you give us a little basic overview of what we're going to talk about? So today's focus is going to be about troubleshooting access issues and then talking about complications specifically related to abdominal access during laparoscopic surgery. All right, so we're going to get into the juicy stuff basically. Or hopefully not get into the juicy stuff. (laughs) Oh, I like what you did with that. (laughs) All right. So I definitely remember, Mary, from the time in my life that I did laparoscopy of like poking around for forever, trying to get into the abdomen and failing miserably. And usually we get bailed out by an attending. But say I wanted to be a super star laparoscopist like you, and I don't want to get bailed out by my attending. What should I be looking? What should I be troubleshooting with as I try to gain access? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of failed entry, so there's a couple of things to consider. If your initial entry fails at one site in the abdomen, it's okay to proceed with a different location on the abdominal wall for entry, as long as there is no complication. If you do see bile, enteric, um, or blood matter returning uh, during your placement, for example, of your varies needle, then leave the needle in place, gain access at an alternative site. That way you can really understand what the extent of your injury is. If you have significant bleeding, then you need to proceed with likely a laparotomy for blood control. And we'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about major vessel injury um, in our next portion of the complications related section. The next couple of things I wanted to ask about is, you know, sometimes when you like put your port in and you realize that like there's gas that's like leaking out of your port or that port is just like moving everywhere. What do we do about those types of things? And that's a very common thing that you experience, especially if you have a fascial defect um, that's too large for your port or there's excessive port angulation. Um, the ways that that can be helped is some institutions have balloon tip trocars 
So you inflate a balloon in intraperitoneally and then tug back on the trocar and the balloon basically creates suction that you don't lose your pneumoperitoneum. Or you can place additional sutures around the area where you see the gas is leaking or a towel clamp, for example, to cinch or close that tissue around the trocar. Um, but leaking ports are a common thing that are that's pretty easily troubleshooted and fixed. You can also have just loss of your port position and that can happen in surgery as well. If you lose your port position, um, you can just reposition it or you can secure it with additional sutures. What about the bleeding port? I fortunately never ran into this, but I know there's always a CREOG question or a board's question about this. Yeah, so vessels of the abdominal wall can be injured during the uh, process of gaining access into the peritoneal cavity with your ports. Um, and so you want to obviously choose access carefully to avoid vessels. When we talk about um, abdominal wall anatomy a little bit in our next segment, I'll highlight the inferior epigastrics and the superficial epigastrics and how you can avoid those. Um, but for now, just understanding, you know, we avoiding vessels will help with the bleeding port side. Um, bleeding from the abdominal wall may not be apparent until after the port is removed because the port in a way acts as a tamponade for that muscular or subcutaneous bleeding. A very general tip, you want to inspect access sites at the start and at the end of your surgery. Um, you can manage most of these uh, bleeding port sites with electrocautery. You can also enlarge your skin incision to get control of bleeding. If the bleeding persists, you can actually place a Foley catheter in through the port, insufflate it, and basically place gentle traction on the Foley to create, again, a tamponade at that site. And then if the bleeding continues, you can pass a U-stitch um, into the abdominal wall under direct visualization laparoscopically. One thing that I sometimes got into when I was a resident is that, you know, you think that you're in, I, we would go in with a gas on all the time and you would think that you're in, but then actually what happens is when you like put in your port, you realize that you have all this like extra peritoneal insufflation and you get this like kind of crunchy feel under the skin and it's just harder to put your port in because you have all this extra space now. What do you do about that? Absolutely. So um, you can definitely get subcutaneous uh, preperitoneal or mental insufflation with any access technique. Um, and you may notice that crepitus in the subcutaneous tissue. Small amounts of the extraperitoneal air are usually quickly reabsorbed once intraperitoneal insufflation is achieved. In elderly uh, patients or patients with compromised tissue integrity, subcutaneous CO2 insufflation can progress rapidly and quickly reaching chest wall, neck, and face. The most important thing is that you'd want to alert anesthesia uh, when you have subcutaneous CO2 insufflation because this may also increase your end tidal CO2. The majority of the time, this extraperitoneal insufflation is reabsorbed by the body and it does not cause major issues. Awesome. And sort of last question along these really general lines of sort of basic complication management um, is really thinking towards the end of the procedure. How or what kind of techniques are there to help minimize pain related to abdominal entry for the patient? So postoperative shoulder pain is not an uncommon complaint that patients have after laparoscopic surgery. So the reason why you have this postoperative shoulder pain, uh, because it's referred pain due to irritation of the diaphragm, and that can be either by fluid, blood, 
or CO2 or stretching of the phrenic nerves during the procedure. So the ways that you can reduce this is by removing residual CO2 at the end of the procedure. So opening all your ports, you can have um, anesthesia help with pulmonary recruitment maneuvers to displace the trapped CO2 as your ports are open. Um, or there are studies that show that you can fill the abdomen with normal saline, um, and that can also reduce this access-related pain after surgery. Pain from trocar placement is expected, but can be minimized by using the least number of ports required to perform the procedure safely and minimizing the number of large ports. So usually greater than 10 millimeters. Um, some providers also inject local anesthetic at the port site, either before or at the end of the procedure to help with minimizing that access related pain. All right. So Mary, let's move on to complications related to abdominal access. I feel like getting access is kind of like the shortest part of the procedure, right? But it's also so important. So talk to us a little bit about some of these complications that can happen. I think you make a really good point, Faith. So this is the potentially the shortest part of the procedure, but it is the part of the procedure where we can have the most serious related complications of laparoscopic surgery. So that's why you know, you focused a lot at the beginning about patient positioning, about thinking about where we enter the abdomen, about how we do each of these procedures, because the next, next set of information really tells us, okay, we need to focus on this because entry into the abdomen account, accounts for approximately 50% of serious laparoscopic complications and medical legal ligations related to laparoscopy are a lot of the times related to the entry. Um, so you can have complications related to vascular injury, gastrointestinal perforation, solid visceral injury, nerve injury, port site hernias, and surgical site infections. Specifically related to laparoscopic entry, in 2019, um, there was an updated Cochrane review that reviewed 57 randomized trials and close to 10,000 participants of which technique, you know, we talked about the open versus closed, open versus um, direct visual entry, open versus varies. And they looked at each of these techniques and they saw, okay, what was the rate of vascular injury, visceral injury, omental injury, trocar site infection, trocar site bleeding, et cetera. And what they noticed was that there was insufficient evidence to show difference in major injury. So major vascular, visceral, or other injury between open and closed techniques, varies entry, and direct entry or various entry and direct vision entry. So ultimately, again, we, we talked about this in the previous podcast is that whatever the surgeon feels the most comfortable with is the best approach to go with. In terms of vascular injury, so um, overall, the rate of vascular injury ranges from 0.1 to 6.4 per 1,000 laparoscopies. Most of these injuries are minor vessel injuries, but vascular injury most commonly occurs during abdominal access and is second only to anesthesia as a cause of death from laparoscopic surgery. Um, some studies quote that mortality rates among patients suffering a vascular injury are as high as 15%. And majority of the vascular injuries occur while placing the pneumoperitoneum needle, i.e. the varies needle, or the primary trocar. And then the major vascular injuries are the aorta, the inferior vena cava, iliac vessels, 
minor injuries or vessels of the abdominal wall, mesentery, or other organs. In terms of minor vessel injuries, although the injury is minor, it is a common cause for transfusion, conversion to open uh, procedure, or reoperation. Um, usually minor superficial bleeding can be coagulated or clipped. During initial abdominal access, it's omental and mesenteric vessels are the things that are most commonly injured. Um, the most common vascular injury overall for minor vessels is the laceration of the inferior epigastric during placement of the lateral trocars, which are usually the secondary trocars placed during laparoscopic surgery. Bleeding at port sites may not be observed with the port site cannulas in place. And then also bleeding within the abdomen um, when it's insufflated um, can cause tamponade of those vessels. It's not uncommon to see that you can have delayed bleeding after the patient has been transferred from the operating room, so one to two hours postoperatively. Um, and then you can have delayed uh, abdominal wall hematomas that can present about two to three days after surgery. And with that, patients can come in with abdominal wall pain, abdominal wall or flank ecchymosis, and an external bleeding from the trocar site. Um, they can also, patients can also present with hemodynamic instability due to significant blood loss from a port site that bleeds internally. So management-wise, when you have these patients, if the patient is hemodynamically stable with no signs of expansion of the hematoma, you can manage them conservatively. If the hematoma expands and the patient becomes hemodynamically unstable or the hematoma becomes infected, you need to have intervention. So you can have percutaneous embolization of the bleeding vessel. Um, if you have a hematoma that's rapidly expanding, leading to hemodynamic instability or infected hematoma, then an open surgical approach is your next step. In general, cutting trocars with sharp blades are more likely to injure uh, vessels compared with smooth um, trocars that push the vessels out of the way. So that's something to consider when you're entering the abdomen. In terms of major vessels, major retroperitoneal vessel injury is 0.1 to 1% of cases. It's really important to consider the proximity of the uh, vascular structures to that anterior abdominal wall. And this is what we stressed in our first episode where we talked about entry in very thin patients. The aorta can be as little as two centimeters away from the anterior abdominal wall. And then injury to the aorta or iliac vessels during abdominal access can lead to rapid sanguination and death unless prompt vascular control and repair undertaken. When you enter the abdomen and you have injury to these major vessels, you may uh, recognize immediately free blood in the ab abdominal cavity. However, you also need to appreciate that you can have um, bleeding into the retroperitoneum um, and you may have bleeding into the mesentery and that may not be appreciated right away as you enter the abdominal cavity. If you have an injury to a, a major vessel. So immediately you would seek expertise from a subspecialist or a surgeon who is experienced with vascular procedures. The, you would alert the anesthesia team immediately. For patients in lithotomy position, maintain the extremities in an elevated position to minimize hypotension. If a vascular or trauma surgeon is not immediately available, damage control approach um, can be used like in trauma surgery, for example. So ensure you have adequate IV access, start fluid resuscitation, and obtain your blood products. Minimize ongoing blood loss. The way that you can do this is open the abdomen via a midline incision, apply pressure, 
directly to the bleeding site um, for initial control and then pack the abdomen. And then you just continue with your fluid resuscitation, your blood products as the vascular or trauma surgeons arrive. The biggest thing I think as a surgeon in the operating room is that, you know, you have to understand these injuries are very rare, but you are in control and keeping the environment as calm as possible and alerting everybody about exactly what you're seeing and taking everything in a stepwise fashion is still really important, even in these situations that are extremely nerve wracking. Yeah, no, that was totally nerve wracking. Um, <laughs> I hope I'm never in that type of situation. Another situation that I hope I actually don't end up in frequently, if at all, is with like a bowel injury, um, which I understand is also pretty common with laparoscopy. Yeah. So looking at bowel injuries, bowel injury is the third leading cause of death after anesthesia and then major vascular injury following um, laparoscopic procedure. Um, most intestinal injuries um, were previously incorrectly attributed to electrosurgery during laparoscopic surgery. However, most are due to pneumoperitoneum needles, i.e. our varies needle or trocar placement. The incident for uh, GI injury is ranges from 0.03 to 0.18% of patients undergoing laparoscopic surgery. And this happens about 30 to 50% just from at gaining abdominal access. In a retrospective review, looking at close to 30,000 gyne gynecologic patients, 33% um, of intestinal injuries were sustained during insertion of a pneumoperitoneum needle. 50% during placement of an umbilical trocar, and then 17% during placement of a secondary trocar. When you're looking at bowel injuries, the small bowel is the more commonly injured GI structure during abdominal entry. However, you can have injury to the stomach, liver, and colon with subcostal access techniques. Many bowel injuries go unrecognized, and delayed diagnosis of an access-related GI injury is a significant cause of morbidity and mortality and a major reason for legal action in the United States. In a review of 21 studies of bowel injuries sustained during laparoscopic urologic surgery, the incidence of bowel injury in about 15,000 patients was 0.65%. Nearly one half of the injuries were not recognized at the time of surgery. No patient with bowel injury that was recognized intraoperatively sustained a postoperative adverse event. And then patients with unrecognized injuries and presenting in a delayed fashion required multiple procedures to manage the surgery. The biggest takeaway that I take from this is, yes, the incidence of injury is low. However, if you recognize the injury intraoperatively, then your patients are not going to sustain or I should say, are less likely going to sustain any post-operative adverse events. So recognition of the injury is extremely important. Some general tips. In the case of suspected GI injury, unless you yourself are an experienced surgeon and you feel comfortable dealing with these injuries, ask for an expert to come in to the operating room to guide you with this. Injuries due to pneumoperitoneum needles may be able to be managed conservatively. Most other trocar punctures require simple primary closure, reapproximating the bowel wall with simple suture in one or two layers. For discrete large bowel injuries, 
Colostomy is rarely needed. And again, remember, call any expert in if you suspect an injury um, and they can help you. That is really scary sounding, Mary. Let's move on to um, some more complications. One thing that I'm thinking of that seems pretty uncommon overall, but I guess could happen, especially I guess if we're placing those suprapubic ports, is something like a bladder puncture. So what do we do about that? Interestingly, injury to the bladder is more commonly associated with primary or secondary trocar insertion rather than related to dissection during the course of the operation. The most common times that we see puncture of the bladder is with that suprapubic trocar um, in an over-distended bladder. So if we're looking at a survey of about 400 OBGYNs in Canada and about 136,000 patients, there were eight bladder injuries reported. Four occurred with the pneumoperitoneum needle, two with a primary trocar, and two with a secondary trocar. Some general tips to think about. So if you're placing a port below the level of the umbilicus, place a Foley catheter to help decompress the bladder. Signs of bladder injury include gaseous distension of the urinary drainage bag and bloody urine. If you suspect injury, you can instill indigocarmine or methylene blue into the bladder to aid in identifying where the injury is. Usually small three to five millimeter punctures in the dome of the bladder generally resolve spontaneously with bladder decompression, i.e. fully bag placement for seven to 10 days. Um, large or regular defects will require with absorbable suture using an open or laparoscopic approach, whatever the person is more comfortable with. And then again, you leave a Foley catheter in place for seven to 10 days, depending on the size and location of the puncture. In the general theme of these complication-related issues, if you feel uncomfortable dealing with the bladder injury yourself, please call in a urology consult to help you understand what the extent of the injury is and how to repair it. Thank you, Mary, for all of those scary complications and things that we should be consulting friends for if needed. But let's move on to something else that's kind of like a post-op complication, I guess, in the way of hernias. I remember us like having some occasional M&Ms related to like port site hernias or extraction site hernias. And I was wondering if you might be able to go over some best evidence for those in particular. With regards to port site hernias, so port site hernias are less common than incisional hernias after open surgery. If you look at uh, laparoscopic hernia rate at about two years is about 2% compared to an incisional hernia rate from open surgery at two years is about 8%. An AGL survey reported port site hernias were as low as 0.21%. A big thing that influences the rate of your port site hernia is the trocar slash port diameter and axis technique um, can affect that rate. So with the use of a trocar that's less than 12 millimeters, radially dilating trocars or bladeless trocars, the risk of developing an incisional hernia is extremely low. It's very uncommon, but there have been some reported cases of five millimeter port side hernias. Most surgeons close fascial defects of ports greater than 12 millimeters when they're used, but a lot also advocate for repairing ports and closing the fascial defects for greater than 10 millimeter trocars use. There are still some case reports, even if you have primary fascial closure of that greater than 10 millimeter port that you can have a hernia form. When a port site hernia is identified, 
uh, following laparoscopy, the site should be repaired to prevent the development of an intestinal complication like obstruction strangulation. Clinical manifestations that you might see from your patients are gross disruption of the wound with drainage, presence of a bulge with exertion or valsalva, or painful continuous bulge if bowel or omentum is incarcerated. The patient can also present with clinical signs of bowel obstruction or infarction. I think the general principle is that most people will close greater than 10 millimeter um, trocar defects. Um, and you can see that there isn't a lot of clear data in terms of uh, what that rate, the true rate is of port site hernias. In terms of extraction site hernias, so surgical specimens may require an extended incision for a specimen extraction during laparotomy. So for example, if you have a large ovarian cyst and you want to remove it, you may need to expand one of your abdominal trocar sites. And so incisional hernias could develop at that specimen extraction site. In a single center retrospective study of about 2,000 patients undergoing laparoscopic colorectal resection with multiple different extraction sites. They followed up these patients for about six years after surgery, and the overall extraction site incisional hernia rate was 7%. The most common site of the extraction was a periumbilical midline incision, which is about 13% of the time. The least common site for a extraction site hernia was a fan and steel location, and that happened about 0.9% of the time. An alternative technique, instead of expanding your abdominal incisions, is to actually create a posterior colpotomy to remove your specimens through a bag in that way because you are not expanding abdominal incisions and therefore you will not um, have that increased risk for an abdominal hernia. Nick, I see you shaking your head. <laughs> But it's a great way to remove specimens, and then you kind of don't have to think about this extraction site hernia risk. However, as you can see, the overall risks for hernia formation are low. I think the biggest takeaway from this segment of information that we went through is that the rate of complications is extremely low in terms of when you look at overall percentages in these huge studies. But the most important part for a surgeon is to understand that these complications can happen, what things to consider when you're counseling your patients about complications, and then how to manage those complications and recognize them in the operating room. Because ultimately, when you recognize a complication, that's when your patients will have the best outcomes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mary, for coming onto this podcast again and giving us all this great information about laparoscopy. Yay, laparoscopic surgery. <laughs> so once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, any of your favorite podcatchers, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee on Facebook and Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, or on our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Coffee. Send us some love, we'll send you some swag. You can find show notes for this show and every other episode on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction for this show or our prior episodes, or just want to say hello, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.